I stay bout it, I'm not pouting Break through walls and climb it mountains If you want it, scream it loud And show this world what they've been G'day listeners, welcome to the Braintainment Podcast. This show is an interesting mix between pop culture and personal development with a very wide range of guests that come on the show for a chat from the sports space, philosophy, health and fitness, entertainment and everything in between. The idea is to entertain or to educate you guys and hopefully sometimes both, either through just myself or with the guests that come on the show as we explore different ideas and concepts and have some really interesting conversations. The mission with the Brain Tamen podcast is to raise a million dollars, and that all starts with uh, building an audience and a platform. So thank you for tuning in. Our goal is to raise a million dollars towards brain injury recovery and research. So if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and family, and be sure to subscribe. With that said, strap in and enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome back to the Braintainment Show. Today, my guest is Sean O'Gorman, founder of The Strong Life Project, which we'll talk more on shortly. Um, he's a speaker, podcast host, author, um, and he has a very powerful story. We'll just talk a little bit off air, which, of course, we'll expand on more throughout this chat today. Um, Sean was originally a police officer for 13 years who found himself face-to-face with a slew of crazy situations um, and confronting situations, and subsequently... Uh, was diagnosed with PTSD, depression, and battled suicide for many years, which he's been quite open about. He did also have a 15-year successful corporate career, which ultimately culminated in him now running the Strong Life Project. And today's chat will be a deep dive into his story, uh, what the Strong Life Project is all about, what his mission is there, and of course, unpack some of the lessons learned along the way. He's got a ton of articles that he's put out, um, podcast episodes, I think over 300 now, Um, And I encourage you all to check it out. I really like his authentic, uh, honest approach to some really important ideas and conversations worth having. So I'm super pumped to have him on the show today for a chat to pick his brain and, of course, learn a bit more about his journey. So with that said, mate, uh, welcome, Sean. Yeah, thanks, Liam. Great introduction. I'll only correct you on one thing, mate. I've got 1,700 podcast episodes, not 300, but uh, otherwise, mate, you've done research. Research brilliantly. That's impressive, really? mate. Well, I've got I've got a few on the books now, but I'm a bit shy of seventeen hundred. So we'll um we'll get you back on the show in a couple of years and we'll see what I'm up to then. Perfect, mate. That sounds awesome. Well, let's start from the beginning. Uh, it's a crucial part of your story, of course. Uh, your time with the police. What was your role there? Just to give some context, what was your role there? And sure. maybe just give us a snapshot of, I guess, some of the experiences that you came up against. Yeah, sure. Made it. Um, my police career goes back to when I was five or six. My dad was a cop for 42 years. My uncle was a cop. So it was a bit of a family business in some regard. So that's all I ever wanted. Joined at 19. And uh, my dream from like when I was six, I went to the police academy for an open day with my dad. And they had police dogs there jumping through, you know, obstacles and biting people and whatever. And I thought, you know, that looks pretty cool. When I was talking to my dad about it, and we're very similar personalities, he's pretty full on as well. He, um, he goes, oh, yeah, it's a great job. It's really hard to get into. There's no paperwork. You just do all the fun. So even as a young kid, I was like, that's me. So I worked really hard to do that from 19, joined the police, did my normal uniform stuff, did a little bit of plain clothes. And at 22, I think I was the second youngest person in the history of the squad to get in at 22. It was very, very sought after. Um, another guy who became a great mate of mine was on my same course. He was the youngest. So he was 20, I was 22. And you do a 14-week course and then... 
there was 43 general purpose dog handlers. So that means you have a German Shepherd and you go to all violent incidents. So domestics, car chases, armed robberies, uh, sieges, anything to do with violence and where people either have the propensity to need to be um, subdued by the dog, bitten by the dog, but more so if they have the propensity to run and we track the human scent. So you run with the dog through the bush, through backyards, normally in the middle of the night, it's mainly night work, and you don't know who you're chasing. So you're relying very much on this animal for your own safety. I look back now at 50 years of age and a little bit more uh, mature, I guess, probably not a lot, and it just makes no, no sense. But it, understanding some stuff around neurology and that now where we don't, our brains don't fully form till we're 24 or 25, mm. it's no wonder at 22 I just didn't care. And then that, you know, I loved it. So any normal day, mate, um, there was like 43 general purpose handlers out of 6,000 police, so it's pretty hard. Um, and any night would be a combination of car chases, domestics, you know, violent domestics. So if we weren't in jobs using the dog, I certainly, and there was sort of two camps of guys that did that job. There was guys that just did dog work and didn't do other police work, and it was pretty cruisy. So you'd go and the, the level of violence for those guys was significant, but not probably to the stage where myself and a group of guys of my era back then just came together somehow, probably eight of us around the state, that went to everything. So if I wasn't using my dog, I was at domestics fighting, you know, violent men that had assaulted their wives or I'd be at big pub fights or whatever because I just love that stuff. Then um, the best job I ever did, worst job I ever did, is one I use for context. We were in a pursuit here in Fortitude Valley in Brisbane. Uh, very long story short, two guys were out for suicide by police, as we realised was their intention after the job finished. They'd been both arrested for trafficking in, in heroin, so they were going to jail for a significant period of time. We chased them. One of the, um, the passenger was sitting on the windowsill of the vehicle with a rifle on the roof firing shots back at us as we were chasing him. There was 24 bullets in the front of the vehicle in front of me. I, I had got on the back of the chase. I was seventh, got to second vehicle, trying to get the first vehicle. They crashed onto the mall in Brunswick Street at 11 o'clock on a Monday night, chased them on foot down the mall, and there was only myself on foot. Um, I forgot to take my police dog. It was, it was a pretty hectic situation. He would have been handy. And I, there was a male and female police officer in a marked vehicle, that General Duty's police, that were on the mall, and there was a big light pole had fallen, so all the other cars couldn't get on there. We went down around the corner, ran through the mall. They were pointing the rifle at me. I couldn't shoot because there was people around, around the corner, under an awning, and they stopped and they turned around. And there, by this stage, there was a heap of other police cars that come around the block, and they're there. And I'm walking under them with my um, pistol in my hand, screaming at them to put their rifle down. And the first guy puts it under his chin and pulls the trigger, shoots himself a few metres from me, not far. And then the second guy bends down, and I'm, run I'm moving on him, sort of not quite running, but moving fast and screaming at him every obscenity. So not pick up the rifle. He picks it up, looks me dead in the eye, puts it in his mouth and pulls the trigger and, and uh, shoots himself. The second guy died. The first guy lived. So that's pretty extreme. But mm. I would often be a job, you know, go to jobs where we have no idea what was going on, come across people with firearms. And this was pre-Port Arthur. So the gun laws were very lax. So most yeah. people had, you know, a lot of people had firearms. So, and so Liam, it was something that, that was just my normal. And mm. I loved it. And I was 19. I'd grown. It was like I had 19 years in the police before I joined because of my dad. And I worshipped him. So, mate, uh, I didn't have any idea. And we never spoke about mental health impact 
back then. I joined in 1989, and you were probably born somewhere around then. 89, then, mate. I was born. There you go, mate. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so go back to when you were born. It was a very different conversation around these things. So yeah, I had no idea the impact it was going to have. So I alluded to it a little bit in the intro then uh, as well, but let's talk about that impact it had. Um, you've spoken a lot about it in the talks you give, in your podcast articles, and of course, a little bit off air that we'll, um, when we were chatting. So um, what impact does those sort of situations have on you sure. long-term, I suppose? Yeah. It's one of the hardest things for police officers or soldiers, I think, to acknowledge and get their head around, especially those personalities. And not just men, what I call alpha personalities. Everyone's heard of the alpha male, but alpha personalities, women and men. You go and join a career to do things that 90-whatever percent of the population don't want to do and probably could never do and certainly don't do. So there's an element of police officers and soldiers needing to operate in these extremely violent and um, unusual situations but maintain a sense of normality. And it really just doesn't make sense. Physiologically, as human beings, as animals, we're not built to see the amount of mm. violence a soldier or police officer will see. So then we need to be very aware and proactive about the physiological, neurological, emotional, spiritual, physical, obviously, impacts. Now, for me, what it meant was my bucket, the simple way I describe it, the bucket that we all have in our life as humans that I have now, I'm 19 years post my police career. The bucket that I carry all the stress and shit in my life, you don't get a bigger one as a cop or a soldier and then you put more stuff in it and it just overflows earlier and has a bigger impact. So if um, talking off air about your brain injury and what happened with you, there would have been a level of a post-traumatic stress um, mm. uh, reaction for you, no doubt. There would Absolutely. have been depression. There would have been all of that, mm. right? And not diminishing your scenario at all, Liam. But that was one incident that caused great impact because it's personal. And it's your situation. Now, the difference for me as a police officer, they're not my situations. But I saw some research the other day out of the States. They said most humans will, will encounter one and a half to two significantly um, impactful, violent or you know, significant events in their life. A 20-year police officer will, will encounter somewhere around 800. So that just straight away says to you that people in those careers similar to emergency doctors nurses ambos fireys i always say fireys is a tough job but they sleep a lot so it's not that bad so they're, they're probably okay and i'm obviously joking but all of those things is impacts you to the point where you don't realize my anger was worse my sleep was affected i was medicating with alcohol didn't realize eating terrible food shit food you're addicted to sugar and other shit that gives you mm. instant hits of dopamine and serotonin so you feel good but all of those things also um, unfortunately magnify the impact of the stress result because it's all stress, whether it's what you see in a violent incident, whether it's well, if you don't sleep, that stress, if you don't eat well, that stress, if you don't train that stress, if you are constantly in a state of paranoia and hypervigilance, which is a very normal state for a police officer, that stress. So you're literally just bombarding your physiological system that can't, that stresses our limbic brain, monkey brain stress response is should last 90 seconds to a minute. Mm, yeah. The saber-toothed tiger kills you or it doesn't. It's that simple. I was probably 13 years under that and then post, and most police or people like that are, but nobody talked about it, so we had no idea. And even now, we're still in the infancy of police understanding. 
Yeah, so that's where I wanted to go next, actually, is, the, is the, I guess the level of understanding. So I can only assume there's some, you know, level of training and expectation that some bad shit's going to happen on the job. Um, but I suppose, I, I suppose just following on from what you were just alluding to there, is there still a pretty low level of, um, or like, what's the best approach to set someone up for a role like that, given what- Absolutely. Yeah, like there's yeah. a real, I think in society in general, there's a, there's a low level understanding of how to process trauma, how to overcome challenges, how to deal with mental health challenges, um, things of that nature. And then of course, when we go more microscopic into something as sort of specific as a police officer, um, where the issues are kind of tenfold, um, just the level of understanding, I think, is um, one of the biggest problems. And that's just from an outside view anyway. So Absolutely. that'd be a fair assessment. 100%, mate, spot on. And there's a couple of mitigating factors that cause it to be worse. Police are taught to taught in the police academies, but also, and again, it's the irony of the public perception, police are taught for six months of their career and then they're on the road. Now, there's ongoing training and they're training officers and there's different things for sure. But you can't train people to deal with everything you're going to see as a police officer. Every job's different. Uh, I, there's a guy called Jocko Willink who, yep. oh, have you heard of Jocko? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's ex-Navy SEAL, um, pretty full-on dude. I was listening to something, an interview with him and Joe Rogan, actually, and they were talking about the Black Lives Matter and the police brutality and all these things that are very topical. And as Jocko said, he said, police officers train at best one or two hours per year in hand-to-hand combat, for instance, in self-defense. So you will have one day that's what's called OST operational survival training, I think they call it. So it's firearms, you know, a bit of wrestling, some tasers, some pepper spray. And the actual fighting component, the hand-to-hand component is extremely limited. He said, like, for them to go to to Ramadi for a six-month deployment, they train for 12 months. So police officers are so underskilled in many of these things. They live in this extreme environment of stress. So they're overweight. They don't sleep. They're short-tempered. There's definitely people who overreact, of course, because if you've been out, one of the things I say to police all the time, if you've been out in general society, there's some dickheads out there, there will be some in police because that's where you recruit from. That's just, that's that's statistics. But where police, I think, are very ignorant, and I think as a society, we're pretty ignorant to mental health at the moment, is because we're still stuck in this phase, Liam, I believe, of awareness. Certainly for police and military, and I do a lot of work in those environments, but I do a lot of corporate work and I do a lot of work one-on-one with mentoring clients. Everybody talks about awareness and it's things like, are you okay, Dave? Which I think is amazing. But where's the education go? Well, what do you do when someone says no? How do you get to the point of educating yourself and giving people skills to be able to deal with stress? Mm. And I think also in modern society, I'm someone who thinks very differently to most people. I don't think it's generational. Most guys my age at 50 look at guys your age and go, well, your generation is, and I go, that's all bullshit. That's just, that's just you know, typical you know, ignorance. But we're not educating people these days. And coronavirus has really highlighted for me who we are as people. Because tragedy and difficulty doesn't create character. It reveals it. Mm. And people have lost their minds over things like wearing masks, um, lockdown, different things. And I get it. I totally understand it's very stressful and it's very difficult. I found Corona, the lockdown, and we were only locked down for six weeks in Queensland, so it's nothing like you guys in Melbourne, and I acknowledge that. But as we talked about off air, I didn't find it that stressful. My business wasn't overly affected, so I was very fortunate. 
Um, I didn't see my, I've seen my girls for 12 hours and six months as a result because of some family court stuff with their mum. So that was very stressful. But outside of that, I've been through enough shit in my life that I'm like, I can get through this. And we've had so good for so long. And I think we've very, we've been very focused on isolating people so they don't get hurt and they don't suffer challenge and difficulty that we've just lost the ability to be resilient. Mm. And then when you put that on a microcosm of policing, it's exactly the same. So cops, there's so many people who are ex-police officers like me who've written books like I have, who speak like I do, but I haven't found too many that have spent 15 years educating themselves on personal development, you know, physiology, neurochemistry, to be able to go, yeah, it's sad, I get it. And my message to cops and soldiers is exactly what you touched on before. Nobody kicked my door down with an AK-47 at four o'clock in the morning and forced me to join the police or forced soldiers to join the military. Hmm. Everybody who puts on a uniform will understand there's a probable consequence of doing the jobs that we do. You will be injured, potentially killed, something will happen. Nobody's going to go, oh my God, I didn't realise there was violence involved. So if you've made that choice, then you need to take that responsibility to look after yourself because no one else is coming. And I think that's a very simple message we need to t send to police. Then the flip side, and I've done a fair bit of work with you know a lot of agencies in the country, and police agencies still aren't doing enough. Absolutely. They're very much still stuck on the awareness piece, not the education piece, and that's mm. where we need to be moving to. Mate, that's why I wanted to get you on the show for a chat, and I feel like we could riff on this for hours. I really like that um, idea of um awareness is one part and it's huge and i think it is in its infancy but it's a super important place to start at least by comparison totally. to you know, 5 10 15 years ago um and then step two almost is okay well what do you do like how do you how, what do you Absolutely. do with trauma what do you do with challenges how do you approach a mate or a friend or a colleague um and it, i mean i think that's continually evolving but but hence the reason for these sort of conversations is to learn and to grow and you touched on your personal development journey there i think i like your story because um, what you've done is you've taken something extremely traumatic and, you know, we've only scratched the surface of some of the, the challenges that you've come sure. against um, and you've gone on this journey and it's not an overnight uh, fix, but you've gone on this journey no. to read, to listen, to absorb information and kind of filter it through and um, kind of build and construct and architect your personal philosophy to then start doing something with these challenges. So I think so for myself, just to digress a little bit. And again, we're talking a little bit off air, you know, I've had, yeah. like everyone, um, there's always, everyone's got some sort of baggage. And for me, the biggest challenge I suppose to overcome was this uh, injury to my brain, to my head. It was a nasty concussion that lingered and just flipped my life on its head. And it's still something I struggle with today, but um, it took me down this rabbit hole of studying neurochemistry, learning about the brain. Um, why am I sad? Why am I happy? Like what's dopamine? Yeah. What's serotonin? What's too much cortisol mean for me? And it goes from uh, unnecessary sort of geeky information, which to be honest, I just like geeking out sometimes anyway. Um, yeah, me too. But it, yeah, but it, but it gives you a sense of agency to go, ah, oh, fuck, this is what's going on. It's no longer ambiguous. It's not mysterious. It's frustrating, but it's like, oh, now I understand what's taking place either for myself or friend or family. Um, but more importantly, here's three, four, five things that I know on a yes. biological, scientific, um, even spiritual to, to an extent, like I know yeah. what's going to have a positive impact. And so I think that's why I like your stories. And again, you alluded to it there. You've gone on this journey and, you know, it's continually evolving, um, but it gives you, yeah, it gives you a sense of control and power, I find, when you kind of 
have an understanding as to what's going on and where to go, if that makes sense. Oh, mate, 100%. And I look at it these days and it sounds very, you know, Dr. Phil or Tony Robbins or someone. And, and Tony Robbins is a great example. I used to look at him and go, what a fuckwit. Like, oh, I can't stand his stuff. Then I went deeper into his stuff and I watched his documentary, I'm Not Your Guru on Netflix. Yeah, that, yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah, mate. Epic. Yeah. Oh, I'm like, sorry. Wow, I actually what? went to UPW uh, so a few years ago. Awesome. Yeah. And, mate, I've looked at him now and go, what? Like, I only watched it probably three years ago at Netflix. I was like, holy shit. He's like me, as in he's motivated to help people. That's what he, you can see it in his eyes and his emotion. Yep. What an absolute superstar. And I'm a very simple example using that deliberately of where most people live. If mm. I can make him a dickhead, then I don't have to listen to what he says. If I can go, Tony Robbins is only about making money and blah, 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 blah. Then I can just, just I can absolutely ignore everything he says. And I can live fat, dumb and happy in my misery, yep. feeling sorry for myself and being a victim. Yes. Simple. You've excused now yourself. I look, absolutely. Yeah. And then I go, well, it's not my fault because my mum and dad got divorced and my dad wasn't around and I got PTSD and depression and then I got married and it what didn't work and I battled suicide and then I drank too much and then I was on coke for a while and then my marriage fell apart and then I've been in family court and it's all so sad. And when I look at all, you know, that's the 12 second story of my poor sad life. And I go, thank fuck. Every one of those things was amazing. Every one of those scenarios, to this day, I'm still involved in the family court process. Unfortunately, see my daughters for 12 hours in six months. Breaks my heart, but fuck, it drives me to be a better person. Mm. And I spent six hours with them up until last week. And then I spent six hours with them in a block. And they've got something particularly going on with, with their mum's family that I won't give details. It's not my business to. But it's pretty challenging, pretty difficult for them. Um, someone close to them is quite ill. And we had this amazing emotionally connected conversation. And I was like, dudes, that's such a tough thing. But you know what? Look at it this way. Because of how what an amazing relationship you have with that person, that's why you're sad. And your mum loves you and she's a great person. And her and I just have our challenges. And this is how I live, mate, because I go, I see too many people and I used to be him. At your age, I was a cynical, angry guy. Now I'm like, I'm probably one of the happiest people I know because I just choose it. Mm. And happiness is a choice. Happiness is a skill, like any other freaking skill. skill. You want to get I good at love golf? that you said that word. 100%, bro. It's a skill because if you want to get good at golf, play more fucking golf. If you want to be more happy, be more fucking happy and practice the things that make you happy. Mm. No, it doesn't make me happy. Having 12 beers and then waking up the next day feeling sad and for three days being down in the dumps because my neurochemistry is fucked. Yeah. And then whinging and you know going into the dark corners of my life to prove why I'm such, you know, why it's so bad. Mm. And mate, we have a genre of entertainment called drama. Like, I despise drama. I still get sucked into it and love it in that sense. I was watching a Netflix show called Kingdom. If you haven't oh, watched it, watch my housemate watches that. He's obsessed. Oh, oh, it's awesome. It's so dark. It's so like it's all about fighting and cage fighting, and it's dark. And I, I actually love it because I. And obviously, it's a, it's a fictional story. Yeah. But the way they did it was brilliant because you see characters go in and out of this immense grief, immense challenge, and it is exactly what life is. Mm. But what we do in our lives is we don't take responsibility. And I started educating myself at 35, oh, 32, but properly at 35. I've been to every psychologist, psychiatrist I could find, did landmark education, which you might know about, went on silent treat my auntie ran. Every happy clapper, hippie, caftan wearing, incense burning, lunatic, kinesiologist, acupuncturist, hypnotherapist. I did it all because I was like, I'd do something and get a little bit and I'd go, 
awesome. And I have an addictive, obsessive personality. It's just self-awareness. I just know who I am now. So instead of getting addicted to taking cocaine or, you know, smash myself in the beers every weekend, which I used to do, then I'm now addicted to living this amazing life mm. where I go, every bit of information will be awesome. And I love coming and doing these sort of interviews because I know, talking to you, mate, I will walk away with pieces of information I never had before. And mm. I go, awesome. Every client I sit with, I learn heaps. Every book I read, every podcast, every conversation. And these days I don't do drama. I don't have dickheads in my life. I only have people who are emotionally connected and are doing something. Mm. And people may go, well, that's really arrogant. And I go, maybe it is. I don't give a shit because it makes me really happy. I think what it is, is it's clarity, Sean. It's, um, you totally. know, clarity gives you power. Tony Robbins actually talks about that a lot, but so does a lot of, you know, t- clarity really gives you power. And I find that indecision really is the thief of joy, right? What about this? What about that? Yeah. And, in, and that's, that's as true in work as it is in life. And it's something as simple as like, hey, these are the people I choose to hang around with. This is the, this is the type of content I like to absorb. Um, and having that clarity just sort of removes the fatigue that comes with indecision. Of course it does. Doesn't but matter. a simple, a very simple way that I put it, if you and I are going to get ice cream hmm. and you love strawberry ice cream and I hate it, I'm not going to eat strawberry ice cream just to keep you happy. Right. If you, let's put it the other way, so I'm the bad guy. If you're super positive and an emotionally connected guy and I'm a miserable, whinging pain in the ass, then you shouldn't have to eat that shit any more than I should have to eat your strawberry ice cream. Right. It's just simple. It's choice, yeah. right? It really is. And I think, again, what I also like about you, Sean, um, the little I know about your story anyway, and just from afar, um, and it's becoming even more apparent, you know, the more we talk, is uh, you're able to approach your journey the right way. And so what I mean by this, and this is something that I've become increasingly passionate about recently, is uh, you cannot change your, like you, you can't change your destination overnight, but you sure can change your direction in an instant, right? And Absolutely. I think I'd love to get your thoughts on this. I think time is a really important variable, um, particularly this, the same way that the world of neurochemistry and neuroplasticity um, is yep. evolving. It's getting really exciting because it means that even as an adult, yes, it's harder than when you're seven years old. It, your, black, your brain is more plastic as a young kid, but as an adult, sure. it's not set. Like you can literally change your values, your beliefs, your behaviors, your skills, that everything. Um, but of course, you know, the same way that it works with a positive, it does, it, it can have a, it does also mean that for you, mate, for years of challenging traumatic experiences, you do build neural pathways and your brain yeah. starts to adapt that way. So time is a really important variable, but the key part about your story and, and hopefully to an extent the journey that I'm on is it's about taking bits and pieces of the right yeah. books, the right podcasts, the right people, you know, I'm sure you would agree. Like we don't have all the answers, but if someone listening no. or watching to this, hopefully they're getting some part a piece of value that they can digest, filter it, and then decide, is that of value to me? Is it not? But the key is getting yeah. in all the right information, filtering it through, and then allowing a time to start rebuilding neural pathways to sort of show up and be the man or the woman you want to be. Totally, mate. Mm. And it's all about intention, right? So I go, uh, when I look back as a, as a guy in my 20s and early 30s, as a police officer, my intention was to be as tough as I could be and be a hard man. Mm. And it was full of shit. I was so scared. It was all imposter syndrome. It was all insecurity. And everybody around me was the same. I look back now and just go, wow, if one of us had have had the courage to actually be emotionally connected and vulnerable and lead the other young men I was around, then we all would have had a fundamentally different experience. But we were so scared to be different. We're all mm. terrified to be different, mate. What I've learned to be able to do now 
And because I've got a very strong obsessive personality and I've developed, um, someone said to me a while ago now, they said, you're uber confident. And I was like, is that a compliment? And they said, well, I'm not sure. And I am very, very confident to know who I am through many years of working at that skill. Mm. But I have an immense love and passion for what I do because I want to impact people. And mm. I come down to those two simple things for me that are the foundation of everything. The identity of who I am and the identity that I've created and I live into as being a loving, powerful and connected leader in my life. Uh, as, a, as a coach, when I'm keynote speaking, as a dad, as a partner, when I'm getting my coffee in the morning to the barista who makes my coffee, I want to be loving, connected and powerful in whatever is appropriate. And then I go, it's my purpose to help people and have a positive impact, help people make a difference, whatever. So if it doesn't fit those two filters, I don't do it. So I gave up drinking five years ago, not because I had a problem with alcohol. I didn't. I could drink or not drink. It wasn't a big issue, but I loved it. The problem is my obsessiveness that if I had two beers, I have 200. And that's still, I never got myself in trouble, but I'm a loose character just in general. So if I had 10 beers, I'll be in an, a nightclub somewhere at 50 years of age, with my shirt off doing push-ups because that's my sort of personality. Mm. And I go, that would detract from my message. Mm. So I don't do that. So I'm very intentional. And the neural pathway thing I love because the best way I've found to describe it, it's like riding your push bike backwards and forwards on a wet piece of grass. If you ride backwards and forwards on the same track, it digs deeper and deeper and it's harder to get out of that track. That's what we do with our belief. Mm. My dad's 74, 42 years in the police. At one stage, was the second most decorated cop for bravery in Australia. A really hard man. Heaps of trouble in his personal life. Married three times. Has, you know, a lot of challenge around relationships. Love him to death, but we're not super close. He's, you know, pretty damaged. Mm. He decided, I think in 1968 or something, there was a bad plane accident in uh, Tambo in Western Queensland. I think there was 24 people died, something like that. He processed all those bodies through the morgue would have been horrific. He would have been a 22-year-old um, police officer and went and literally would have had to put piece of bodies together. So horrible, horrible mm. scenario. He's now 74. For the last 50 years, he's convinced himself from that thing that he's terrified of flying, so he won't fly. And we had a conversation a few years, four or five years ago at Christmas, and um, I just, like, there's something about flying. He goes, no, nope, no, nope, I'm scared of flying. I can't fly. Fuck that. And I said... Well, you choose to be scared of it. He goes, that's bullshit. We had this really, well, it was a great, it wasn't an argument, but it was pretty heated. And we're very similar personalities. And he's getting more and more angry. I'm like, dad, you choose to. I said, because he drives trucks. Now he's retired. He drives trucks with race cars on them for fun. Like he's, he loves driving. And I go, mate, you driving a car from here to Melbourne is far more statistical possibility of you dying than flying from here to Melbourne. Mm. Yeah, I know that, but that doesn't stop me terrified of it. I said, well, it does because it's just a fairy tale, mate. You just believe it. And eventually we got to a point, he was pretty heated. And he goes, well, I don't want to change it. And I said, that's great, mate, because that's fine. Don't tell me you can't, but if you choose not to, I'm happy. Mm. I said, don't fucking lie to yourself that you can't because anybody can change anything. And I absolutely believe that. I was diagnosed with PTSD in 2001 and the psychiatrists and psychologists said, you'll never cure yourself. I was recently at, um, I presented to 120 uh, RAF personnel and there was a clinical psycholo uh, psychiatrist there. And I said, I'm sure that Carmel will stand up and totally disagree with what I'm going to say. I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist. I'm not a medical professional, but I've cured PTSD and depression. No symptoms, don't have it. 
And I said, and you can cure it. I said, because I decided when they told me I would have it for the rest of my life, I was like, fuck that. I'm 31. I'm not doing that. Now she stood up and goes, I absolutely, Sean's right. I disagree. You cannot cure it. I would suggest Sean does an amazing job of managing the symptoms. Now, I don't give a shit what she believes. She's a lovely woman. We got on great. Mm. I don't give a shit what she believes. I've cured it because I fucking decided I have. And if you if we're not willing to make those decisions, probably like your brain injury, brother, I'm sure you're of the opinion that it's not going to stop me. I, I was injured, but I'm, I would hope mm. you would go, but I'm not still injured. Right. Or whatever that part. Yeah, of the self-narrative is like it drives totally. everything we do. Absolutely. And we believe what we tell ourselves. So what do you think then? Just on that thread, where do, where do people fall short? Like what do you, and you've worked with, you do a lot of keynotes, you work with people uh, personally. Yep. What have you found are some of the common themes for what holds people back? Because ultimately what we're talking about, like you have to do the work, right? Oh, my, so, that's it. So what is it? Is it, is it their self-narrative? Is it your beliefs about the world? Um, is it low confidence? Like what have you found some of the common themes as like hurdles to whether it's recovery over physical or psychological trauma? Is it, uh, or hurdles just to uh, personal development journey, skill set acquisition? Yep. Yeah, what have you found as common fear. things? Mm. Fear. That's all of it. So people have fear. So you operate in one of two places in your life. You're either in fear or you're in love. And I operate in love as much as I can. Sounds weird as, sounds all fluffy and woo-woo, but they're the two things. If you're in a space of love, then you're happy. If you're in a space of fear, then you're in pain. If you're in a space of love, then you're connected. If you're in a fear of a space of fear, then you're, you know, lonely. All of these things. And fear is the thing that I find with every client I work with, every freaking one. When I first start working with them, they're like, they know what they want, but they mm. just don't know how to get it. And the reason they don't know how to get it is because the pain of the fear, mm. both hand in hand, stop them. So it's more painful. So if you're 10 kilos overweight, right? And I use this analogy with every group I speak to. I go, how many of you are overweight? And they, you know, people put their hands up. Okay, great. I said, how many of you have no idea how to lose weight? Nobody puts their hand up. I said, so you all know if you eat well and you exercise, you lose weight. Yeah, you might not know sleep is probably the biggest contributing factor to obesity. So if you don't sleep well, it's going to make it 10 times harder. You may not also not realize that meditation is a great way to help mm. um, weight loss because it helps with neurochemistry. It takes you out of fight or flight. It puts you in a theta brainwave state so you can you know, have new neural pathways. That's why kids at seven are so good at it, like you said earlier. But I go, so why don't you do it? Oh, I haven't got time. I don't have this. I don't have... And I go, that's all fucking bullshit. That's all excuse. You're scared of something. And what most people are terrified of that I find, Liam, is they would rather die with their potential intact than have a crack and fail. Mm. And it's a simple thing. People would rather be, oh, yeah, if I eat well and look after myself and blah, 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 then I can lose weight. They'd rather have that in their back pocket as a, oh, if I want to, I can, then try and fail because in some way in their mind that feels to be concreted in and then that is where they're stuck. Yeah. I think it's that simple. Yeah. I, dude, you're, you're on a point there that is, um, that like makes my stomach churn a little bit. One, because I recognize it in myself, unfortunately, even still, but particularly over the Me years. Me too, but, mate. Me but, too. But, but just as across society in general and, is this um, this idea of yeah? If you do have a crack and fail, and you give it your all, then that feedback or data. I mean, there's only one way to interpret it, and, and that is at this moment in time, like you're not good enough, or you don't have like. 
And totally. the hit to the ego or the identity and the self-esteem, yep. particularly if it's already quite, quite fragile, I think that's a really good point, Sean, is it's that fear of if I actually explore this potential in whatever it is, you know, like you yep. don't have to, there's no universal um, approach to a, a great life that's the same for everyone. I think there's certain pillars, yep. which we'll talk about in a moment, but um, but whatever it is that is exciting or in, intrinsically interesting to you, um, if you don't explore that to its fullest, yeah, I think there is an element of, it's that fear of if I really do this and I fall short, where do I go totally, from here? Mate. And Let I me would ask like, you a question. Yeah, please. Sorry. So um, where do you think the basis of that, fa- like when you concrete a failure in, mm. and I'll talk about that because there is no failure if you don't quit, mm. number one. If you keep moving, it's not a failure. It's just a stumble. But Absolutely. if you concrete that failure in, where is the pain in that for you? So let's say something happened for you that you failed at. Yep. Like for, use this podcast. You did this for a period of time. Nobody listened. You went, well, I failed yep. at that. So you shut it down. Where's the pain for you in that? I, I think, um, just based on where I'm at in my life right now, the pain would be, I ha- it's, it's a couple of things. It's uh, the podcast brings me a sense of joy. Um, yep. And it's joy in the, in, the, in the moment, of course, but it's also the joy of the yep. idea of it becoming something big. So if the idea having of that, an impact. having an impact, if that gets taken away and I don't feel like I'm having the impact, um, then it kind of feels like, well, where to now? And I suppose more importantly, what I'm talking about is the sense of purpose. Totally. Right. And then, and then let me suggest to you where it's all based in. And that mm. is absolutely true. And because you're a, you're a fairly emotionally evolved young man, I totally agree. But at the basis of the failure is the fear of what people will think. Mm. It's a judgment thing. Everything. Would you agree? I absolutely do. I, I do think, and I look, I, I could, could be my own naivete, I think I've always to an extent and certainly more in recent years um, have been fortunate enough to not be burdened by the fear of what people think as much as what I see. Every single person I talk to on this show has mentioned some sort of element of that to an extent and certainly friends and family, um, you know, uh, mates have an idea for whether it's a business or something they want to do in their relationship and it's just, well, why don't, why don't you? Like, ah, oh, nah. And it's very apparent. It's the fear of what people will think. So to your point, I think universally that is, it, totally. like, it is a pandemic. And the thing is, mate, you will, of course, have a good handle on it because you wouldn't be doing this fucking podcast. If you right. were worried about what people thought, mm. you wouldn't be putting yourself out there with these ideas and everything you're doing. I think what it is, Sean, is... Sorry. Yeah. I'm far more interested in what I think about myself. And this is primarily, and this is going back to what we were talking Absolutely. about earlier about using sort of flipping the script of something traumatic or challenging to your advantages. Um, I've, I've gone through the, I've gone through depression, anxiety, even yep. prior to my nasty head injury, of course, that sure. exasperated things. But in large part, as I sort of analyze it, I reckon a big thing was I was not acting in congruence with the person I wanted to be. And that pain was Absolutely. so painful for so long. I'm so fucking yeah. terrified to go back there of not living authentically yeah. um, that the fear of what people think is like almost a secondary fear for me now to that fear of totally. just not being happy with who I see in the mirror. I think. And how did you get to that? A lot of fucking work. And trauma. And, and tra- yeah. trauma of your brain injury. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So, so if you never got the, your brain injury, 
Mm. I'd suggest you probably wouldn't be on this journey. I, would I'd be, if, if I was, I'd be a lot further away, 1,000%, yes. Because we live, as most people, and this is where I absolutely am so grateful for the challenges of which most of them I created too. Like, I'm not a victim of anything. I, I joined the police and was a fucking lunatic. My bosses were saying, slow down, you, you know, I'm crashing too many cars and like all this stuff. And I just wouldn't listen because I was obsessed mm. with, with helping people. That's what drove me. But I got myself in more trouble because of that. I caused all my own grief. I was out drinking all the time. I was doing all stuff that I didn't like. I didn't know the neurological impact. I didn't know anything about neurogenesis or neuroplasticity or anything at that point. But I certainly knew I felt like shit. So I just would drink more or go back to work. So it was it was just, it was all self-medication. Work was self-medicating because of uh, the adrenaline mm. feeling important, feeling like I had purpose. When I put on a uniform and turn up a job, and especially in my role in the doc squad, when I would turn up at jobs, I've got a, a mentoring client who's a good mate of mine, now very close, but we knew each other quite well in the police. I hadn't seen him for 20 years. And I did some work with him um, late last year and this year. And just an awesome dude, my age, very, um, he's in a different government department now in a very senior role, had a lot of stuff he was challenged by. And you know, we unlocked a lot of this. He's like, how, he goes, how'd you get so fucking smart? And I said, mate, if you think I'm smart, you're a lot further down the road than I, further down the hole than I thought you were, but it's just practice, mate. And mm. when we talked about it, he said to me, and this is not my ego, but it's to actually show how impacted we are by what people think. And the fact is we don't know what they think. It's what they, we think they think mm. it's, it's, it's fucking insane. He said to me, he goes, mate, whenever you, he goes, Whenever you, as in I, whenever you turned up at a job here as a detective, he said, mate, we, there was just a sense of calm came because we knew that shit was going to get handled. And I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, do you remember this job at Ashgrove, particular place in Brisbane? I said, oh, what? and he's telling me, and I, and I didn't. He goes, mate, he goes, we were there. There was probably six of us there. We were, there was a guy with a gun in the house, and you turned up, and he said, I physically felt calmer. I said, mm. oh, shit, mate. I said, you know my experience of turning up to those jobs? I said, I would turn up to those jobs with all detectives and other police feel like an absolute imposter, think to myself, who are you turning up here trying to help them? They're going to think you're a dickhead. You, they're going to think you're an arrogant fuckwit. I said, all this negative fear, he goes, mate, the opposite is how we felt. I said, well, that's really nice to hear. And then I said, what happened? He goes, you turn up. We said, we're going to do this. You said, fuck that. Let's do this. He goes, we all went, okay. We followed you in. You kicked the door and we took the gun off the guy. It was solved. And he goes, you were just brave. I said, you know what I was? Terrified that you would think I was a coward if I didn't kick the door in and take the gun off him. I said, it wasn't, I wasn't brave. I was terrified you'd think I was weak. So I had to do something to try and prove I wasn't. Mm. And he was like, holy fuck. So we're all so caught in this shit. But unless my opinion, unless you have a significant um, like black hole moment, the, the particular term that I've lost at the moment, but unless you've had a particular thing that's your rock bottom is what I was trying to think of. Mm. Your rock bottom. And I talk to clients about this all the time, my, my mentoring clients. I go, you will choose your rock bottom. It'll be something that happened five years ago. So you, Liam will choose his rock bottom to be, was it six years ago? How long ago was your About six been? years ago, yeah. Yeah. So you can decide if you like, even at 30, to go at 24, my rock bottom was my brain injury. And as a result, I'm going to use that to motivate myself to do things for myself that I wouldn't do before. Mm. And I'm going to drive to be a better man for the next 70 years till I'm 100. Or you can go, oh, yeah, I had a brain injury. Jeez, I was unlucky. Then you get into a relationship that doesn't work. Then you go and get married and it doesn't work. Then you end up having, you get divorced and you've got 
family court stuff like I do or whatever, and you eventually get to 80 and you look back and go, oh, fuck, I made all the worst decisions and caused all this grief. Mm. They're the two choices. Most people live in this and your, your rock bottom will be where most people's is, lying on your deathbed, either lonely as fuck and wishing people around you or with people around you that you're not really connected to or with a car full of garages and $30,000 watches and art that you don't give a shit about and you realise everybody thinks you're a dick and then you wish you had your life over. Mm. And that happens all the time because the mediocrity of life, we are perfect as human beings of doing bare minimum to get a result. That's yeah. how we survived as cavemen, right? Yeah. Cavemen and women did the bare minimum, go out, get enough food to eat today and tomorrow, and then we'll go out again tomorrow. So we do the bare minimum to make sure we don't want to jump off a bridge today, but we don't want to be too happy and waste that effort. So it's what I call the 51% mediocre life. 51% happy, 49% miserable. And if it tips the other way, we do the bare minimum to get it back. Mm. That's what happens. So then just on that fear of what people think, because I think it's, like I said, for me, I still, to an extent, for sure, um, feel it. Um, but I think just across the world and in large part, what I want to do with just to digress a little bit, what I want to do with this show, brain taming and sort of the next chapter of my life, we're talking a little bit off air about that. Um, is I I really like the idea of bleeding this, these sort of conversations, personal development, self-improvement into pop culture. Like I want it to be everyone just, you know, not necessarily one secret sauce or silver bullet to like how to live the perfect life, but just be open and be curious and have these sort of conversations. Right. So for that to happen, we're going to have to start to really tackle some of these hurdles that get in the way. I think Absolutely. the fear of what people think is one big one. What are some tools then um, for sort of the everyday Joe yeah. um, yep. to sort of approach it? Maybe it's just as simple as like, I already have a low self-esteem due to X, Y, Z. Maybe it's body, body issues. Maybe it's, I don't know, whatever. Maybe they'll laughed at and bullied in school. Um, so it's already quite fragile. I don't want, and I imagine I'm just sort of pontificating a little bit. I imagine sure. a part of it is um, if I then do something else that's sort of out of the norm um, or puts me out in the spotlight a little bit and I get ridiculed, my yeah. ego is already quite fragile. It could be like, absolutely. where do we go from here? Like, what are some tools? I, I, I don't yeah. have, I don't know. I, how do we get Easy. There? Mate, I live by six tools, really. It was five and I've added a sixth. Um, there's a... Uh, I have a, a, PD, a two-page PDF that I give all my mentoring clients. At the end of this, we'll, I'll give my email address to your listeners. I can email me, I'll send it to them for free. And what it has, so that on the front page, there's five things. Sleep, at least eight hours. Yeah, seven or eight hours. Uh, nutrition, eat. If it had eyes, eat it. If it grew somewhere, eat it. If it didn't, don't eat it. Simple. Now, that. people talk about paleo eating. Simple. Because our body was built to survive on that fuel. Now, if you're a vegan, if, they, if being a vegan is your life choice, knock yourself out but make sure you're eating really clean, wholesome vegetables and lentils and whatever else you're eating. Then train, not exercise, train. Like our bodies are meant to move. So do, you know, get up and walk for an hour every day or half an hour every day. While you're walking for half an hour, listen to a podcast or an audio book or do something instead of listening to, you know, whatever other dribble you might listen to that's, you know, and most I'm going to sound like such an old man when I say this, but most music, like I love both types of music, country and Western. So I go, you know, that's negative rap music. Most of that's negative. Most, you know, pop music is is based around some sort of negativity or some, you know, there's not a lot of upbeat. Oh, life's amazing. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Music, right? So everything that you ingest mentally has a huge impact. I'm going to come to that in a sec. 
train. But when you exercise, so when you're training, you want to be out of breath. I went and trained this morning and I was tired. I didn't feel like going. Rachel and I woke up. She's a really, really fit woman. Um, she's a former professional athlete, works a lot with athletes. And neither of us wanted to go. But not for a second were we not going because we said yesterday we were training today. So we just go and do it. I get there. I'm doing some training and I'm not really feeling it. So I was like, you know what I need to do? And Rachel goes, oh, hun, if you want to, um, if you want to go, I'll just walk home. We don't live far from the gym. I said, no, nah, fuck that. So what I actually did was went and set up a little three station, like with skipping and kettlebells and um, slam balls. And I did 15 minutes of that just straight away. And I hated it. And it was hurting me. Then I walked out of there and it felt great because yeah. neurochemically it dumps serotonin and dopamine, burns adrenaline, shuts down cortisol, does all that stuff. Meditation, huge. Meditation is probably the secret source that we mm. undervalue because it literally puts your brain into a state of theta brainwave state, which is like kids that learn new things. So if you meditate once in the morning for 10 minutes, and I use an app called Insight Timer, and there's a guy on that called Kenneth Soares, S-O-A-R-E-S. He has 90-minute sleep meditation. So as I go to sleep, I have my Bluetooth speaker on, and for 90 minutes, he's like, breathe, do this. You're an amazing person. Like all these positive affirmations. So as I go through the brainwaves in theta as, as you're falling asleep, before you get to deep sleep, I'm literally reprogramming my mind. It's, mm. it's a cheat. So I do it every night. And then mental rehab is a thing, that I, which is podcast books, don't be in shit conversations, positive, all of those things. And part of that is having the confidence and it's not an easy skill but to be happy it's hard to be happy because mm. most people are miserable how often do you catch up with groups of people and go hey man what happened today what's the best thing that happened for you today <clears throat> everybody turns up and goes what's the gossip oh you won't believe my boss did this or that or my girlfriend this or my partner you know, whatever and then journaling is the other one gratitude journaling and it touches on what we're talking about Hugh Van Kolenberg with the mm. resilience project what he it's everything he talks about and I agree it's all about gratitude it's uh, sit down and write half a page of things you're grateful for every morning and do it. He says night, I say morning, it doesn't really matter. And every day has got to be different. Every yeah. day you're searching for something different. So when you're doing that, it actually sets, there's a thing in your brain called the reticular activating system. It's when you buy, a new, uh, what sort of car have you got? Mate, I got a Toyota Orion. Yep, perfect. So before you had that, or what color is that? Silver. So before you bought that Toyota Orion, that silver one, how many of those did you see around? Like us. Who knows? I, I couldn't tell you. And how many do you see now? See them all the time, mate. Exactly. So there's a filter in your brain that takes all of our subconscious thoughts. 10% of that comes to our conscious mind. Very simple explanation. If you are focused on shit, you find shit in your life. If you're focused on happiness, you find happiness. One of the easiest ways to adapt that filter, that reticular activating system in your brain is meditation. And mm. then it's gratitude because when you're sitting down writing, I'm really grateful for the opportunity I had today to speak to Liam on his podcast. I'm really grateful I've got an amazing partner, like which is a no-brainer. But I get to the point of going, I'm really grateful for the immense challenge with the girl's mum and I because it makes me a better man. I'm really grateful that I had to spend eight hours the other day going through emails for the last 18 months to put together stuff for court. Now, I'm not fucking great. I didn't enjoy that. But I find ways to be grateful for it and that puts me in a positive mood so whenever mm. i come across in my life i'm assessing it as something that's happening for me not something happening to me that is 
those five, six things yep. are really the, the foundation. And it sounds so simple that most people won't do it. But do you think that's, it is. Do you think that's the problem is, is that it's everyone's looking for some special secret um, totally. yeah, idea or silver bullet? I, yeah, I reckon that's it. Is um, And it's even just as simple as like, if you want to lose weight, like you kind of touched on earlier, eat well and exercise. Obviously, there is some part of it's, you know, hereditary, but like the, if it might mean you need to put in a little bit extra work, but the recipe is totally. still the same. It's still the... And, mate, and, it, and, it's, and it's that... I've got, a, I've got a million sayings, mate. One of them that I've found I developed lately is I say, you can either pay the pain now or bank it and pay it later. Mm. So you can either pay the pain immediately of not eating that chocolate bar, whatever. Not eating that cupcake that you desperately want. You only desperately want it because neurologically you've trained your body to go, if I eat that food, I get a dopamine hit. Yep. So it's, it's, you're addicted to cupcakes like you are heroin. Yep. Sugar is seven to nine times more addictive than heroin or cocaine. It's the same receptors under MRI in our brain. Mm. Simple. So you can either bank, you can either pay the pain now and go, I'm not going to have that cupcake and that'll suck, suck for 10 minutes. Excuse me. Or you can bank that and pay it off later when you're 30 kilos overweight instead of three because you bank the pain for long enough. And physical health and fitness and, and obesity is a really easy way to see how our, our neurochemistry and how our neurology works mm. because we avoid pain now. That's human beings are every animal's hardwired to avoid pain now. Yes. So avoid pain, worry about it later. Once I get that, then I'll be happy. Once mm. I do that, then I'll be happy. But if you every day when I get up and I'm trying to meditate, and I don't do it every day, some days I get busy and go, oh, I didn't have time to meditate. And if I do that three or four days in a row because I feel great, mm. then all of a sudden I feel a dip. I go, ah, there we go yeah. again. I haven't been meditating. So it's just, it's not a perfect thing. Yeah. And meditation, side note, nobody has a clear mind when they meditate. If you've tried it and it didn't work because you had thoughts, congratulations, you're human. That's what it's about. That's one of the biggest misconceptions I find. Yeah. All of that, mate, just means you've got to be willing to endure the pain. And for me, I'd rather pay a dollar's worth of pain every day than pay 10 grand's worth of pain in a decade's time. Absolutely. Where the old me just used to bank it all the time and then Whinge and bitch when it came due to pay it. It's just life. If you want to smoke, I've got a mate who still smokes. He's 50. Been smoking for 30 years. And I was on a bike ride with him recently. And I said, mate, I said, why do you smoke? No, oh, I don't know, you know. And I said, the cost of it's insane. I said, I don't know if you've heard, but cigarettes kill you. You mm. get cancer. And I used to smoke. And he goes, oh. And I said, oh, well, mate. I said, you'll just pay that debt when it comes due. And he will. Chances are he'll probably die of lung cancer at fucking 60. And then when he's in his deathbed and I go and see him and he goes, oh, it's not fair. I'll go, you fucking smoked for 30 years, mate. Own it. Yeah. Yeah, there's Social usually... Responsibility. There's a There's a recipe for joy, fulfillment, happiness. There's a recipe for sadness, poor health. Like there's Absolutely. the recipe is the key. And your job, I think, as a human and part of I, what I'm trying to do and I think what you're trying to do is help provide context and a, something to work within to to start building your own recipe for those things, right? Cause it will vary slightly, but just on the, on that meditation front and um, gratitude journaling, things of that nature, I think it's huge. It is so simple. It's a practice I've uh, got actually been for some, for some while now um, been trying to cultivate that practice probably more recently have, have I been more religious about it. Um, yep. But I've just had a thought as you were sharing there and I just, I'm just going to think out loud is 
I think there's often um, often the the most important or most critical element to your fulfillment, right? So I say I think fulfillment is the, is the name of the game, right? Your north star is brain Absolutely. chemistry, right? Happiness Absolutely. is probably more of a fleeting moment. It's more sort of yep. um, a cocktail of dopamine and things of that nature. Whereas yep. this deeper sense of fulfillment, I think that should be the north star, and all your decisions should line up towards that. Um, it's a whole yeah, other whole agree. other can of worms. Um, but I think the key to that is usually what you're feeling the most resistance with. And so what I mean by that is for me to get up and exercise, move my body, for me to do stuff, for me to take action and not worry about what people think, I'd love to claim that I'm, that I'm you know, um, pushing through all these mental barriers, but I'd be lying, Sean. Those things come somewhat easily and like you can trace that back you know i was fortunate enough to play a lot of sports as a kid so i was always quite active yep. um always had a big personality made people laugh things yep. of that nature so yeah, to yeah. some extent my sense of ego i suppose was always tickled enough in high school i wasn't i don't have my story is not the one where i had a troubled high school but i i know people sure. that is their thing right um yeah. however i'm constantly stuck in fight or flight and since my brain injury man the damage to the amygdala which obviously regulates emotion yeah. I have yeah. sleep issues. I'm constantly in that fight or flight. I'm always wanting to do something. Um, and then I drain, I get fatigued. So the idea of just taking a moment, training, right? Like you've touched on a couple of times. I love that word, yeah. training my brain to um, just take stop, take five, take 10 minutes. Um, I'm allowing myself to slip back into the parasympathetic nervous system and then, yeah. you know, the calm and creative. And particularly when I'm doing this sort yep. of stuff where I'm trying to like prepare for a conversation with yourself or sure. like I want to be yeah. at my best. Sometimes that just requires sure. just taking a moment to be creative, to ask the right questions or whatever it might be, not always go, go, go. So for me, that's had the biggest impact for the right, for, for the, to, for that level of fulfillment that I'm after but man, it's been the fucking hardest. I still struggle. I always just want to get up so, and go, go, go. Um, so I, I, I get the monkey mind thing, but it's so powerful the, when I do it. And that's the fear and love thing, right? Go back to what we talked about very early. When you're in that in, instinct, your gut instinct, intuition, whatever, that's all heart, that's all love. So when I come into this conversation with you, and it's easy because you're interviewing me, right? I know my story. I know my thing, totally. Mm. But... When I do keynotes, I have, you know, I've got stacks of different topics and whatever. And people, I'm doing some for um, RACQ up here in the next three weeks. And uh, they said, oh, we really want you to do this, this, and this for these specific groups of people. I'm like, yeah, it's all still the same basic stuff, but I tweak it for their uh, specificity. But I go in there, I, I'll sit down and put the, pre the presentation together, which is dot points. And then I've absolutely just go with the flow, follow my heart, see where it goes. I don't write learn things. I don't, I don't deliberately, you know, remember what I'm trying to say in a particular thing because it takes, that takes you into fear. Fear mm. lives in your brain. Love lives in your heart. So yeah, I, I like want that. to be emotionally connected to people. So with you, brother, when I'm here talking to you, I want to be emotionally connected, feeling where we're going and go, I don't give a shit where this goes. Yeah. I, have, I, have no, I have no intention in this other than to have a great conversation with you and hopefully impact some people along the yes. way. Now, if in my mind, I'm like, I really need to make sure that we talk about my book and this and that so I get more business and people do this or that, then the whole conversation is going to be bullshit. People are going to go, I don't connect with this guy yes. because it's none, of it's, it's none of it's that heart space or love. And as fluffy as it sounds, and if people are listening to this and not watching the video, like I'm six foot three, 94 kilos. 
I don't look like I'm going to wear a caftan and, and, you know, burn incense in the street and try and bless people, right? I'm not going to be knocking on your door trying to en enroll you in my religion. But what I am is really focused on just being the best person I can be. And as a 50-year-old Caucasian male, I think it's my responsibility to try and have as big an impact I can because there's a lot of guys like me that have fucked a lot of things up over the years. Yeah. So that's where my drive is. Most people live in the fear. For you that want to go, go, go and do things, we still need to do shit. You can't sit on the couch like the secret of that book from many years ago. You can't sit on the couch and go, I really want to be a millionaire and then the money flows out of the air conditioning vent. That doesn't happen. But if your fear is what's driving you to go, 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 then you're never going to get to where you want to be yeah. because you're focusing on the wrong stuff. If you're, you know what? And I made, I battle the same shit. Really clear. If I haven't been already, I'm not perfect at any of this. I am absolutely fallible. I've people reach out to me and say, like I do social media videos most days and my podcasts and whatever. And they'll go, Oh, I just wish I was as committed as you are. I get, don't live under a misapprehension that I'm committed. I just, my fear is focused on what I won't get if I don't do the thing. Training. My fear is I'll feel like shit if I don't train. Yeah. That's it. Another big part of my training is ego. At 50 years of age, I take my shirt off at the beach. I go, yeah, I look fit and healthy. That's important to me. Fuck, yeah. we've all got ego and vanity. Don't deny it. Mm. But ultimately, mate, it comes down to a, the, every decision, everything you do is either based in fear or based in love. And if you can determine which one it is, avoid fear like the plague unless there's a saber-toothed tiger going to kill you, unless someone's about to rob you or someone's going to set you on fire. Mm. Fear is useless in any other circumstance. Simple. I like that a lot. It's a really good approach. Um, and I resonate with that entirely. Um, mate, I'm going to throw a few more at you. And, sort of, and uh, sure, mate. mate, I'm having the best time. So I appreciate you carving out the yeah. time to connect, getting a lot of value. And mate, no no rush. Mate, Fantastic. So you've got to rush at any stage, mate. Cool. I think the listeners, viewers are getting a lot of value. And just to that point really quickly, um, similar to what you said, I'm very much the same. So it's if I'm coming on a conversation with this with you, I'm far less interested about how perfect or polished I sound. I'm, I need, it can, hopefully it comes across the way I just think out loud and just work through, um, yeah. you know, things on the spot. Um, I'm far more interested in learning to my own journey uh, and then also delivering something of value of real substance, which usually comes less from polish and more from deep, meaningful, connected conversations. Passion. Like passion, right? Like, what, exactly what you're talking about. So I really like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and mate, and you... And from my point of view, you absolutely achieve it. I've done heaps of these over the last couple of years. And you get people who really give a shit and you get yep. people who go, it's a good idea to do an interview so that I can tap into people who listen to my stuff or yep. whatever. It's a business development tool. And I get yeah. in those, I'm like, yeah. And I've only had one or two. Yeah. People like you obviously give a shit. I go, it's yeah. awesome. Because I go, I don't fucking know where it's going. Neither do you do. That's, that's the best part of it. Absolutely. There are a couple of things I would like to um, to throw in there that I was I was um, thinking before the uh, before we went live. But of course, uh, the strong uh, strong life project that you're a part of and put together. Let's talk about that a bit. Um, what's the idea behind it? Uh, what, what's yep. sort of your mission there? And I I remember reading some of the pillars. I think it was six pillars that kind of constitute the um, the strong yeah. life. So let's talk about that a bit. I think there's a lot of value in there. Done. So, mate, um, so STRONG is an acronym for living with strength, tenacity, resilience, 
optimism, nurturing, and generosity. And I came to that after many years of personal development work and whatever. And I look at it like very simply. And it's every time I talk about it, it's slightly different because it's again not something I've right learned. The strength is that the strength to do what you know is right in your life, the strength to be who you want to be, the strength to just show up as your best version, not be pulled out of that by the people. Tenacity to just keep going when shit doesn't work. Tenacity to find a way around obstacles, the tenacity to suffer a brain injury and keep moving forward and, and, and use that to your advantage. Resilience is obviously something we speak about so much these days. And I think it's an overused term that is very misunderstood because all resilience is, my opinion, very simply, is the ability to get up when you get knocked down. It's all it is. The resilience to go, I can get through this. And the, the way that you know you can is because you've survived everything in your life to this point. Because if you're breathing, you fucking survive. So you are resilient. It is just about get up, do the next thing, to, you know, one foot in front of the other, all the old cliches, but it's literally just to have some resilience. The optimism to know life can always get better. Things always improve. You're not stuck where you are now for the rest of your life. The nurturing of yourself, number one, to look after yourself and, and love yourself and make sure you're good. And then nurturing of other people and be emotionally connected, nurturing, caring, supportive to the people around you. And then generosity of yourself, generosity, and that can be anything. Your time, energy, knowledge, just you, generosity mm. of money if you have an abundance of money, generosity of yo-yos if you've got an abundance of yo-yos, whatever it is. And I go, those six things to me, if you live in that, it's a very, very simple thing when you know that they're the six you know, pillars that you basically are, are, are anchoring your life into, then it's shit's very simple. And... I go very, like simple example, when you talk about that sort of stuff, I'm, I had my cousin here yesterday. So my, my cousin's husband, but he, like my cousin and his two kids. And we got a pool here, they were here swimming in the pool and they're six and four. So he was talking to Rach, he hasn't seen her for a while. Him and I connect quite regularly, really good mates. So I was in the pool with his six and four year old, six year old daughter, four year old son. And they're just, we're, they're jumping in the pool with me, like four year old Harry's like, oh, I'm really scared. She want to go, you'll be right buddy, jump to me, you're good. And as, you know, we're chatting about different things and they're saying, where's my daughters? They go, where are they? I said, oh, they're at their mum's house. And they're like, why are they your house? And I said, well, they go, is Rachel their mum too? I said, well, no, Rachel's my partner. I said, but their mum and I were married like your mum and dad. And I said, sometimes some mum and dads don't get on so great and then they live in different houses. So the girls are with their mum and they go, oh, and my niece, uh, my cousin's daughter, whatever she is, my second cousin, whatever, she goes, Oh, that's sad. I said, yeah, it is pretty sad, sweetheart. I said, but, you know, that's what it is. I said, but don't worry because your mum and dad are really good and they're strong. I don't reckon that'll ever happen to you guys. And she goes, oh, okay. And, I go, and then they're jumping around. I'm like, you guys are just great kids. I said, I love you guys. I'm so glad you came over. It's been so much fun. It really yeah, I completely get that. Um, and I think I really like that idea of being, being childlike again. I was talking to someone the other day. I was yeah. down the beach recently and um, – like it really, I find in the last year or so, I've become more more appreciative of the little things like the beach, the water, the, yeah. the, the warmer weather, the um, just being immense in a great conversation like this. Um, yeah. Time with family, particularly during lockdown at the moment. Again, when the silver cool. linings is, you kind of take stock of what's important. You go, I went and saw my parents the other day and it was um, first time in a while. It's just good just to really be in the moment. I didn't take my phone. I was in the car. Awesome. Just, I was really present. And it's just that essence of being childlike where you're in the moment, 
you don't care what people think and you you have this feeling of awe which is so rare in adulthood because yeah. uh, yeah. we're so preoccupied with all the other things now I hope that message doesn't get like diluted too much because I'm still, I love chasing down important goals and I'm very ambitious and me driven. Too, but if me you too. really think about, at least for me anyway, some of the really kind of like intrinsically pleasurable, you know, neurochemical cocktails at its best moments um, have come from really simple shit like that. Like just being really present. Um, and I think that idea of becoming really childlike um at the right times it's, it's just an easy fun kind of idea to marinate in such that when you come up to a situation where um maybe it's time with family or maybe it is just time in nature put your phone away yeah. put distractions away put Absolutely, um, burdens of worrying what people think away and kind of just live authentically and and it's just a really nice feeling mate it's so easy to get caught up rachel and i went away for a couple of days to mulaney recently at the um, sunshine coast hinterland beautiful spot and um we basically, I didn't really look at my phone and I took, I got it out a couple of times and took some video for my um, social media. And even that, I was like, wow, why am I doing that? Now I'm doing it for business and whatever. Of course. Of course. But I'm like, fuck, this is just so insane. that I'm taking a video of a place where I am to show other people where I am. And I always use, have a message in that stuff. And I say, you know, disconnect, look after yourself, blah, blah, blah. But still, still I'm the same. We get so driven to take photos and video of shit we're doing so we can tell other people. So they think we're happy or mm. like, like it gives a fuck the whole idea of social media. And this is a little bit on a soapbox off the topic, but I look at young women these days and I see more and more of them who are very attractive, fit young women that have lip fillers or Botox or any of that sort of stuff. And I call yeah. it the duck lips thing as an old, yeah. as an old man. And it really challenges me for them. Mm. And it's not a judgment of them, but I go, wow, how have we got to a point where obviously Instagram, like whatever, social media, everybody knows how it works, has got young women to a point where they believe the ideal to be looking for is these really fat lips, Botox, and they look to me, and there's, you know, and we've all seen these young women who obviously have a sense of body dysmorphia or whatever it is that has them to the point of obsession around it. And, you, and I look at them and think, it's really sad that in my opinion, I think you've taken yourself so far away from being that natural person you are that it's causing you pain. Yeah. And I'm like, it's really sad because we're getting so focused in on the things. And this is where I think COVID has been amazing because it shut down a lot of shit. Generally, I think where you can't go on overseas holidays. You can't be going out to your, to restaurants all the time and putting, you know, putting photos of you're know, taking 17 f- selfies with you and your partner and having a massive brawl yeah. about the best one so that you can put hashtag blessed next to your photo. And I have an overarching belief. I go, if you've put hashtag blessed on any photo, you're fucking miserable in that part of your life. That's you're not happy at all. And then I look back and go, instead of us just sitting in the moment and, and yeah. Rach and I have developed a practice. We only moved in together a couple of months ago. Every night when we sit down for dinner, with no TV, no anything, and we just sit down and hold hands and go, "What's your favourite thing from the day, and what what do you what are you grateful for in the other person?" Mm. And I had a great mate of mine come here recently for dinner who lives in Mackay, lives a fair way, 10, 10, 11 hours away. I haven't seen him for a number of years, 
And he just texted me and said, oh, I'm in town. What are you doing? I said, mate, come over to my place for dinner. He hadn't met Rach before. comes over and we sit down and she dished dinner and we were catching up. And he's a beautiful guy, Solomon Islander. Um, beautiful man. And he was in the police, same as me, for more time than me. And we were just sitting there. And when we, we dished the dinner up and him and I were eating and Rach wasn't eating, I was like, I, don't, I was dishing it. I said, don't, don't wait for me, hun, just eat. And she sort of looked at me and I went, oh, shit. Sorry, Dal, do you want to do our gratitude thing? And she goes, oh, yes. And she's a very strong woman. Not She, would, uh, she wouldn't just go, oh, I won't say anything because I don't want to yeah. upset him. She's very strong. And she goes, oh, I just didn't want to make you uncomfortable in front of Murray, my mate. I said, fuck no. He goes, what are we doing? I said, hold my hand with the word on the end of it. It wasn't, yeah. uh, mate. I said, hold, I said, hold my hand. He goes, what for? I said, because I fucking told you. And I said, hold Rachel's hand. And the three of us, three of us did the same thing. And he's like, this is awesome, brother. Fuck, this is so good. Mm. Now I go, that's something that a few years ago I wouldn't have done because I would have felt too insecure and go, oh, he's going to think I'm a dick. It was awesome, mate. Set up this beautiful connection. I'm farm that like that's something that I look back on so fondly. Yeah. When it used to be houses and cars and motorbikes and trips and I don't give a shit about that stuff anymore. Have you seen um the Social Dilemma on Netflix? No, I haven't. Mate, Is it's it worth good? watching. Yeah, it's like an hour and a half. It's okay. all about obviously it's the social media, but it sort of touches on that. The it's, well, it sort of touches on the um the the pandemic of like comparison and constant comparison, but yeah. probably more importantly, the addiction and the dopamine spikes. Um, yeah. Again, obviously, it's tailored that way. I think we know that, but I think just something is at its almost root fundamental level. Something is putting your phone away in those moments is um, allows you to, to connect and be present, which obviously creates its own sense of joy and fulfillment, which is, as we've said, the name of the game. Uh, but it's also like even just training your body to be, it's like fasting, right? Like it's fa- dopamine fasting has become like a practice that I've tried to incorporate where possible. Um, yep. It's been a really, really powerful tool. Um, I fast every day, mate, till lunchtime. Yeah, yep. so do I actually. Um, yeah, and obviously because of the, the myriad of physical benefits and mental benefits, the same yeah. thing is dopamine yeah. spiking, I think, from putting from yep. um, getting away from tech, particularly social media, which is just so, you know, uh, by definition addictive. Like it's what, the way it's designed. And yeah. I got no beef with it because obviously like similar to yourself, yeah. I've got a business and a platform we're trying to grow. So kind of- and we're pa- and People are using it, mate. It's making money. If, if, if we didn't want it, we wouldn't have it. I think but it's a just, simple thing. Yeah. Just being aware enough me, to what's what totally. the good and the bad, right? And being strategic enough to pivot through it all. And I think there's a very simple thing that I had to get my head around, and it might just be a me specific thing. I don't know, but I had this thing with my daughters, especially. That was the excuse. I need to have my phone on me all the time, in case they need me. Mm. Now, they've never needed me that urgently that I couldn't wait, because the reality is. If my daughters are at home with their mum and touch wood, God forbid anything happened to their mum or each other or something, they would call triple O before they call my mobile. Because ringing me is a waste of fucking time. Ring the police or the ambulance or the firefighters, whoever you need in that emergency. And then they can call me later. I can absolutely help them with the impact of the emotion of what they've gone through. But I'm not going to turn it. I don't have a fire truck parked in the garage. I can go to their place and put out a fire. Mm. So we have this weird idea that and, and I don't think it's even a self, I've heard people say it's a self-importance, but for me it wasn't. But it was, I don't want to let people down by not being contactable yep. or it's the old FOMO, the fear of missing out on something. That's all it is. And both of those things are just bullshit. Mm. So these days, I more often than not, my phone's on silent and more often than not, I don't, I deliberately try 
not to respond to things immediately. If it's a phone call from someone that I'm like, I know what that's going to be about and it'll be fast, I answer it. Yep. If it's if it's someone just catching up social and I'm in the middle of doing stuff, I don't. If it's an email comes through from someone and says, hey, you and I went backwards and forwards over daylight saving and whatever, I'll see your email pop up and I work really hard to because it's a very challenging thing to do. I don't immediately look at it because I go, I know we're catching up today. If you email me four days ago, I doubt there's anything so urgent that I need to drop everything else I'm doing and do that. Yeah. Especially if I'm sitting at dinner and here's my phone right here. If I'm sitting at dinner and I see an email come through from you, I go, I just got to check this email from Liam in case it's important four days out from our interview. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. But we've convinced ourselves that's the case. Yeah, the same insane, way that people are addicted to alcohol, drugs, whatever else, convince ourselves we need it. Mm. But, and it's the irony of it. Ultimately, social media was put together so we could be connected, but we're less connected than we've ever been. You know, we really you know are. Think. And it's like, I didn't think I'd be so passionate about this kind of subject matter even six months ago. Like I was very aware yeah. of the perils of it, but I think just the more you kind of have a, you zoom out and, and sort of look at its impact on culture and what have you is, um, is crazy. And, and again, like I touched on it a couple of times throughout this chat is a lot of the work that I want to do is really look at, okay, how do we change culture? How do we change the social yeah, dynamics? Absolutely. How do we make, you know, these conversations more prevalent and make the idea of learning sexy and cool and absolutely um, fucking useful. It has uh, utility, right? Like skill acquisition. And it's not about building an ego around being smart. It's just like, being thirsty for knowledge so that you can one, make the right decisions to live a fulfilling life, which is the most important thing. And two, yep. like um, paradoxically almost is like the effort you put into developing yourself and upskilling and um, changing your approach. It's going to have this myriad of benefits in your work Absolutely. life and relationships and all the other cool stuff as well. So it's like just a really good place to start is to just be really thirsty for learning and, and filter through what works for you. Not everything we've Absolutely. shared today will resonate with every person. No. Um, but I think the idea of connecting with us is, is it makes sense, not just us in particular, but just the idea of learning anyone exactly um, is the most important thing, right? That's the part I want to encourage the most is learn, 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 fucking learn, and then start filtering, you know? And it's all on that. We have this device in our hand and it's, Mm. you would have heard this is my favorite little tidbit I picked up somewhere in 1984, 1986 when Ronald Reagan was a president, every computer they had, this is more powerful than that. Every yeah. computer he had to run the free world, right? Yeah. And so there's, and people you know, often will say to me, oh, but how do you know what to, what to, what's true and what's not? I go, well, you're not an idiot. Mm. Just go with what feels right. And they go, well, where do I start? I go, go to something. That's it, mate. It's feeling. It's love. It's that same thing. Again. Yeah. Go yeah. With go with what feels right. right. Take totally. it in and then process it. Like all about feeling, right? Yeah. And then I go, it's a simple, simple thing. If you want to be a better husband, type in how do I be a better husband? If you're not sure, if you're like, I just feel like I'm not a great human, type in Google or YouTube, how do I stop being a shit human? Like there's every freaking statement or phrase that you can type into a search engine, there will be something and that will take you down a journey and you will, like as we're here and we talk about the the um, social dilemma, which I'm now going to go and watch. I go, yeah, I'm going to watch that. And then we talk about, you know, the resilience project with Hugh, you go, oh, I should check that out. And then, mate, like, because all of this stuff just takes you to another part. And the overarching thing that is my strongest belief, this needs to be a lifelong journey for people. It needs to be who they are, 
yeah. but something they do. Yeah. I will never stop learning. Well, like, why would I? If I'm in, in my deathbed at 110 is the age I've picked I'll live to. If I'm on my deathbed at 110 years of age, I won't be at all surprised if I'm reading a, a, a personal development book or talking about concepts with people and go, you know what I've realized as I'm lying on my deathbed to my daughters, granddaughters, kids, like whatever, this thing. Yeah. Please take that and use that. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. That's what it's all about. Mate, I could not ag- I agree aggressively um, with, with that. And I think it's a good little segue into the last one I want to float by you and then um, we'll wrap things up. I think it's a good place yep. to finish. I saw you put an article or, or podcast together recently um, about the idea of being the same person uh, privately, personally, uh, yeah. publicly, professionally. Um, and I think at its core, that's just a really good place to start uh, for listening, watching, to start really wrapping their hands around. Like, okay, well, how do I start moving in the direction of a better life? Like we've just touched on, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of information, yeah. a lot of stuff. Um, the, the key is to start that journey. I think a really important part of that is just being authentic, whatever that looks like. You don't have to, like, I, I talk fast and, and and tell bad jokes sometimes when I'm talking. Like, that's just my shtick. Me too. Um, yeah. So... You don't have to do that. Like you don't have to host a podcast, Uh, whatever you're like, you just, whatever feels organic, um, you know, extrovert, introvert, all all, all kinds of whole other um, myriad of things that, that that differ people in the way they show up in the world, whatever that is, it should at least be the same in all these different arenas. So could you maybe talk to us about what your thoughts were behind that? I guess the impact of not doing that. Yeah, Absolutely. And it's something when I, cause I saw that somebody, I saw that somewhere else and um, I thought, oh shit, I might've even been Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V, right? And you, you know, Gary V is on. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So for your listeners who haven't look up Gary V double E on any social media platform, epic guy from the States. I love him. A lot of people hate him. I go in and out of his work cause I find him a bit overwhelming at times. I watch it, I watch it for a period. Then I go, I've had enough. And I'll go sure in and out of his stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure people do that with my stuff because I get there's I'm pretty passionate and full on at times too. So I heard it come up on that, and I thought, wow. And I, what I do is whenever I hear something like that, a concept, a statement, an idea, I go, do I do that well or not? And I don't ask myself why do I do that well. I ask myself where don't I do that? So whatever the thing is, and depending on you know tense and, and everything else, how you structure it. But I'm always looking at if it says be the same person privately, publicly and personally, then I go, where am I not that? Mm-hmm. I don't go, oh, yeah, I'm that because of blah, blah, blah. I try and find where the – I go into the deep recesses of my insecurity and try and find where I'm not the best person. And the, when I looked at that, I went, you know what? I actually think that's something I do pretty well. I think it's something I did abhorrently – hopelessly and disgustingly poorly 20 years ago, six years ago. Now, look, I used to work in corporate, as, as you touched on, and I, and I didn't enjoy it. And I worked in commercial property, shopping center development, and my standard line with people is I met more psychopaths doing that than I did in the police. <laughs> and because it is just such a, a money-driven world, right? It's very, very transactional. Now, I look back now and go, I was probably... 70% the same guy in all those areas. I've always been quite confident in who I am in particular situations. So as a mm. police officer, when I, so I turn up to jobs and I'd be really stressed and nervous if I had time to think. If I was going 160 kilometres an hour to a job to a guy with a gun, turn up out of the car, 
dog, gun, run, chase him, move. I had normal physiological fear, but I never had doubt mm. or insecurity. I had normal fight or flight limit brain response. But it was only when I had heaps of time to think that my insecurity chewed me up. So now I honestly look at myself and go, I'm the same guy talking to you as I was in the pool with the six and four-year-olds, my second cousins yesterday, as I am. I've got a three-year-old goddaughter who I hang out with a lot. Her mum's like a daughter to me who I'm with them. I'm the same guy when I'm delivering to 120 military personnel. I'm the same guy I was yesterday with a 15 and 12-year-old, two young boys, um, young men who is a mate of mine, their sons, a guy I met recently who I really um, uh, admire. And he's an ex-military veteran, came back with some significant injuries from Afghanistan, pretty, pretty awesome dude. And I'm the same guy with those boys. I was talking to them about a whole lot of emotional difficulty and challenge and things for them within their lives. And I still would, like they're 15 and 12, I was still swearing. I said, boys, I get this is fucking hard stuff. The 15, 16 he was, he's like, yeah, the 12-year-old was like, well, I said, I, I know most people don't use that word right, mate. And he goes, no. Nah. I go, but you know what it is? He goes, yeah. I said, you and your mates say it when no one's watching. He goes, yeah. So I don't try and set up to be a different person with him. Now, with my six and four-year-old second cousins, I didn't swear. If I'm sitting with another a client who's a 45-year-old, um, I had a woman that I worked with earlier this year who was a about my age, an intensivist, intensive care doctor, one of the most qualified doctors in in Queensland. I still swore at her. Some of the names I called her and the shit that I pressured her to do, I was thinking, what are you doing, mate? Like, you can't do that. But I know who I am. And the thing is, Liam, I've done the work for 15 years plus mm. to know who I am. So I'm comfortable in the reason I do things is out of the right drive. Yep. It's intrinsically motivated to help people and have an impact. So I am the same guy professionally, privately, and publicly. I get I'm in a very unique situation because it's my business. So I can be whoever I want. Hmm. And a lot of these organizations I go into, police, military, corporate, say to me, what we really love about having you here, Sean, you can say shit we can't say. And so I stand up in front of groups of people and go, fucking wake up to yourself. You guys need to take responsibility. Stuff that they can't say because I'll get offended. And I often say, and I go pretty hard with police and military more so than I do corporate, different environment. But I'll say to cops and soldiers, I'll say, if you don't like me, if I piss you off, then you need to ask yourself why. But I'm more than happy for you to make a complaint. You just ring my boss. I go, that's me. I don't give a fuck what you think. Right. And they sort of laugh. And I'm sure like, and, and I've had feedback where they go, you know, some of them leave, some of them don't like me. Some of them do. Yeah. But I know that I'm coming from the right place. Mm. People these days, mate, I think you're one person in, and I've always sort of been like that, the foundationally, but I would be, you know, we've all got mates, male or female friends who are different, whether their partner's there or not. Mm. They're, we're different whether, and I used to be that guy too, don't get me wrong. Different whether you're at work or you're with your friends, different with your mum and dad than you are with someone else. But I go, you should be 97% the same person. You might change some of your language to be yep. appropriate for the interaction. You might change some of the depth of conversation for that. If I was to walk into a corporate environment and I've got two women who are 30, who are like daughters to me, who one father suicide, another one who's very violent, died of cancer, that I connected with um, over the last four, five or six years, or I treat them absolutely like my daughters. Now, them and I have had some extremely deep conversations about everything in their lives. Mm. And I mean everything, 
Now, I'm not going to walk into a, a corporate um, keynote presentation. They're both very attractive young women. When I've met both of them, I said, listen, this isn't a weird sexual thing. I'm not trying to pick you up, but I'm old enough to be your dad. Who do you rely on? And that's that relationship. Now, I'm not going to walk into a, a corporate talk, see some very attractive 30-year-old woman and go up and go, hey, what's the hardest thing in your life? And I'd love to be your dad. You know, like, you know, that's, that's just going to be a very weird thing. Hmm. But I'm still the same guy. When I go and get my coffee in the morning, I'm like, g'day, mate, how are you? How's your day? What's happening? If I go to the grocery store yesterday, I um, had this like five-minute chat with the, the young woman behind the cash register at the checkout. I said, how's your day going? And she goes, good. I go, that's a shit question, isn't it? I go, I bet you everyone asks you that stupid question. She goes, yeah. I go, nah. I said, uh, what's going great about your day? And she goes, oh, well, actually, talking to you now, people aren't really that happy. And I said, what's, what's shit? She goes, well, it's Sunday. I'd probably rather be outside. I said, yeah, totally get it. I go, thanks so much. That was awesome. So nice to talk to you. Now I leave and go, maybe she doesn't give a shit. Yeah. Or maybe she goes, wow, that was really nice. But I want to be the same guy everywhere. And I want to be somebody who brings joy to people. Yeah. Just simply. Now, That's awesome. selfishly, because I fucking feel good. I don't want to put the energy in my life to pretending to be someone I'm not with you, where I come on here and I wear a suit. Like, mate, I, took, I had my training singlet on before. And I was like, oh, I probably should put a polo shirt on. And even that challenged me. I'm like, ah, oh, fuck it. But I go, well, no, there's a level of professionalism that I need to at least pretend. It'll take people 38 seconds to realize it's not true. But it's all those things, mate, to just think, why would I? The only reason I wouldn't be the same person everywhere is either that person is not a great person yeah. or there's something about their behavior or their interaction that's not okay or... I don't value who I am. Either way, there's work to be done in any of those three scenarios. If you cannot be the same person you are for everyone in every scenario, whatever you do, you've got work to do. Yeah, And we all do. Mate, it's a good place to finish. I really like that. And I like that you said to some extent as well, it's because it makes you feel good. And I think that's really, oh, really absolutely. apparent. It's something about being authentic. You kind of know when you're not being acting congruence with um who you are at its core. And like you say, you sort of adjust your Definitely. language and things of that nature to certain con uh, contextual situations. But for the most part, you should show up with the same, um, certainly the same intention, the same energy, you know. Um, so I really like that, you, that, that we, we finished there. Um, it's a really, really good, important point. Perfect, mate. Absolute pleasure. Mate, it's been, uh, it's been real. It's, I've learned heaps, which is my intention all along. And I think people listening or watching to the show will take a lot of gems away as well. So just to finally wrap up, mate, where can people connect with you if they want to learn more? Yeah, sure. Um, the Strong Life, the Strong Life Project .com, the Strong Life Project podcast on all of the um, platforms. So that's 10 or 12 minutes a day, every day. And I've done 1,700 of them, about five years worth. Uh, I get a lot of feedback from people around the world that that really impacts them. Mm. so check that out it's obviously free i've written a book called my dark companion you'll find through my website or any of the social media platforms that strong life project and if anybody wants to reach out to me to get that pdf document that i talked about or to ask questions or do whatever so happy for them to email me at sean s-h-a-u-n at the strong life project.com so happy to talk to them pleasure sean um really awesome to connect mate Legend, Liam. Thanks, mate. So appreciate the opportunity and uh, congratulations on what you're doing, brother. I think it's awesome. Thanks again for listening to this episode. If you did enjoy it, if you got some sort of value from the episode, please do us a favor and subscribe to the channel. We've got lots more to come. And 
share it with your friends and family. It all helps our mission of raising a million dollars towards brain injury recovery and research. So please share the podcast and I look forward to sharing more with you on another episode.